Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. All right, Joe, um, you know, we're sitting here right now a month out of college football season. we got a lot of big-time stories from across the sports landscape, and none bigger than some really sad deaths we have of amazing uh, people in the media and in the sports world. Um, you know, starting with Vin Scully, who had a legendary broadcasting career. I mean, he has been, he was the, the color analyst for the Dodgers in both Brooklyn and LA and did it for longer than you and I's lives put together. 67 years is how long he was the color analyst for the Dodgers. And Joe, I mean, 94 years old. He's probably, you know, maybe one of the top 10 most famous announcers we've ever seen in the world of sports and a real tragic loss, but someone who's definitely got a career that's worth celebrating. Yeah, no doubt, Dan. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's very well articulated, especially when you put it in perspective with our ages put together, you know, is not as long as the period of time that he broadcasted for the Dodgers. And what was so surreal when you look back at his career, you know, aside from just the Hollywood worthy, um, you know, prowess of his announcing skills. Additionally, I think about just the great players that he saw through the years. I mean, what a joy it probably would have been to pick his brain, you know, with the players he would have covered firsthand and announced firsthand. You look back to like historic games from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the, the Sandy Koufaxes of the world and so many others. This guy saw that firsthand and then also saw, you know, the greats of this era. So I just can't imagine everything that he witnessed. Well, absolutely, Joe. And I mean, I learned some things and looking at his history that I didn't even realize, you know, there's all this talk in LA about how, you know, you need new stadiums. Of course, they just built a new stadium for the Rams. And one of the problems that USC has had is that they're playing in the aging Coliseum. But, you know, the thing about the Coliseum is it has so much cool history from Olympics to I didn't even know this. The Dodgers played the Coliseum for a long time. That's what I found out in relation to Ben Scully. That was something I didn't know. Yes, I think there was a World Series uh, played there. And then I think after uh, Dodger Stadium was built, probably in the early 60s, they moved over there. And, uh, you know, with all the, the stadiums that have changed nowadays, with everybody like building a new stadium every few years, I think Dodger Stadium is now the third oldest uh, ballpark in uh, the Major League Baseball after uh, Fenway and uh, Wrigley Field, kind of surprisingly. But, yeah, I mean, Vin Scully – uh, he, he, you know, started out at the, the Coliseum. Yeah, and it's just so interesting to, to think about the fact that he called World Series for the Dodgers when they were in Brooklyn and now in L.A. And, you know, you kind of feel bad for him a little bit in that if he could have held on for a couple more years, he would have had multiple more opportunities to call Dodgers World Series games. Yeah. I, I don't know I, what they would have been in 2016. It probably would have been a long time since they had been in the World Series at that point. Yeah, yeah, they it was uh, that's that's a shame when you think about it. You know, they won the World Series in 2020, but yeah, that was four years after his retirement. And the previous time they made it to the World Series is back in '88 with the famous uh, Kurt Gibson home run in Game One that he got to call against uh, Oakland. And so, yeah, it is a shame that he did not uh, at the end of his career get to call more uh, World Series games for the Dodgers. And yeah, they're definitely kind of in the midst of a dynasty for them. That's right, Joe. And, you know, uh, looking at some of these calls that he had, 
of course, is most well known for being the Dodgers color analyst. But I didn't realize just how many like epic calls that he had in other sports. Uh, he actually was the one who made the call for the catch. Of course, that would be uh, you know Dwight uh, Dwight Clark's catch for the uh, San Francisco 49ers in the 1981 uh, AFC NFC Championship game, which was the first time that Joe Montana would ultimately win the Super Bowl. And it took one of the greatest catches of all times for them to beat the Cincinnati Bengals and make it to the Super Bowl. Yes. A game I think that Tom Brady was at. Crazy. Ironically. Really, that, that is interesting. He must have been like maybe like five or six years old at that point. Mm-hmm. I think so. So. And Joe, I mean, he goes on and on. And when he comes back to baseball, he's got all kinds of great calls that don't actually involve the Dodgers. Like, for instance, he was there. He made the call for Hank Aaron's 715th home run, which they probably planned that because he was the height of the announcing game to where he could maybe be the guy who would have a chance to get to announce that. And he also did uh, the Bill Buckner epic fail for the Red Sox, which, of course, in 1986 was the closest the Red Sox had gotten going to win a World Series until they finally got their the monkey off their back against the, uh, against the Yankees in 2007. Yeah, yeah, you finally had uh, Chicago win a title. And then, um, you know, you think about um, the fact that going back to Hank Aaron, that really was cool that they were able to bring him in to call that game, you know, for the Braves. Uh, that, that was definitely a, just a historic moment. That's right. And, Joe, speaking of that, uh, for our listeners, we're going to play that real quick. And we listened to this earlier. And what I thought was one of the coolest things about this call that he had of Hank Aaron's 715th home run is A, he brings in kind of the history of where we were culturally in America at that point, and B, this is something he had for his style, which I think is really good. I think a lot of announcers maybe insert themselves in the situation a little bit too much, is that you know one of the things that set Vince Scully apart is when a big, epic moment happened in the sports game, he would let you listen to the crowd and what's actually happening in the stadium before he put his two cents in. Mm-hmm. Right. He had a perfect uh, rhythm and flow with that. That's right. And now this, uh, for everyone, is Vin Scully calling Hank Aaron's 715th home run, which, of course, broke Babe Ruth's record, which no one thought was possible to be broken. And, of course, I love this because Hank Aaron is the hero of my hometown in Mobile, Alabama. And here's Vin Scully calling Hank Aaron's 715th home run. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, 
and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. So you can see there, I mean, he had a great voice and, like I said, a real great recognition for the moment with the way that he would wait and kind of allow everything to happen. You can hear the fireworks in the background. You can hear the chants of everyone. And then, like I said, when it brings it in, I really love the way that he put that out there. Like, this is a great moment in the Deep South. This is a great moment in the United States and a great you know, moment internationally. And it was just, uh, I thought that was really, you know, it almost makes me want to cry. It was such a good call. Yeah, no, just, just phenomenal. Absolutely. So really, really tough loss right there. And I mean, you know, with what we do, it always like, you know, is, is harder for me when you have a great announcer die. Like I remember one of the saddest I've been was when Keith Jackson died. And mm -hmm. so I definitely, you know, understand that. And what's even more interesting, I was when I was looking at that video on YouTube, um the person who posted it posted it right after hank aaron died it's kind of a tribute to him and of course that happened a year ago and now you're thinking about the two main components of this hank aaron and vin scully are now no longer with us that's right that's right that, that's um, really crazy to think about that's right joe and we also have another big loss and uh of course this is a player and this is bill russell who one of the most successful uh nba players of all time and mostly because of how many championships he won and how he was the part of just, you know, what was the greatest dynasty we've probably ever seen in sports, to be honest. And that was the Celtics in the 60s all the way through the 80s. And, of course, Bill Russell won 11 titles and only playing 13 seasons of basketball. That's right, Dan. Uh, I think he made it to the finals all 13 seasons. And then going back to college, he won two titles at the University of San Francisco and, you know, that it's not like you wanted it at Kentucky, you know, or, or UConn. You know, winning at San Francisco is definitely just kind of uh, speaks volumes. And I looked back today, and I, I'd forgotten that uh, Casey Jones, who would later go on to coach the Celtics in the 80s and play for them, he, of course, was a teammate with uh, Bill Russell in college at San Francisco as well, hmm. um, with part of those uh, championship teams. So kind of uh, see the full circle there. Um, another thing I remembered, I could not believe thinking about it, the recollection that Bill Russell was not even drafted number one overall coming out of college. He was drafted second overall, and I can't even remember the player that was drafted first, but the Sacramento Kings uh, franchise at the time, I think they were the, the Rochester Royals, they had the number one pick, and I thought it pretty much sums up how they still, you know, pretty much failed to draft today the fact that they uh passed on uh, bill russell of all people i mean the kings had that very brief period of time when they had chris weber when they were relevant and then for a second um and we, i'm trying to get the name of the the guy that was from kentucky it's from mobile was a really oh, good center demarcus cousins demarcus cousins had him good for a couple years but really, the Kings, for the largest part of, of their tenure in the NFL and NBA, have been one of the worst franchises in the NBA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, longest current drought as far as an NBA team making the playoffs. And so, you know, that kind of sums up that ineptitude there. But uh, Bill Russell was also surprisingly not drafted by the Celtics. Um, he was drafted by the Hawks, I saw, and then traded to the Celtics um, for a player that was currently – one of the better players for the Celtics at the time, 
But um, when I look back, though, Dan, Bill Russell's career, you know, you summed it up well because we think of him as the ultimate champion. We think of him as a part of the Celtics dynasty. Uh, you know, you got trophies named after him now with the NBA Finals MVP. But the other thing about his career is just the statistics. You know, he wasn't known as much as a scorer. You know, he's a guy that maybe wasn't going to get quite 20 points a game. But his rebounding ability and defensive prowess, just otherworldly. Like he averaged, I think, uh, throughout his career, uh, like seasons where he averaged over 22 rebounds per game. Um, I think in the NBA Finals in his career, he averaged over 24 rebounds per game. You know, just numbers that we haven't seen outside of like a Wilt Chamberlain. Well, I mean, you know, that's what you got to do to win that many championships is elevate your game to the highest level when you're playing in the championships. And showing that jump right there in two rebounds per game, that's pretty sizable. Yes, yes. And, you know, I would think about it every year, how lucky we were to have him, you know, in the sports world as long as we were. Um, like I can remember up until just a few years ago, he would present the NBA Finals MVP trophy to the winner. And I was like, you know, how cool is it? You know, did you get to see somebody that's such a legend, you know, in real life, um, you know, handing out a trophy that's named after them? That's right. I mean, I remember it was a really cool moment when, you know, of course the Celtics are a franchise that's won all those NBA titles. But really, since that time, they've had brief periods where they were good but couldn't really – they only won that one championship when they had Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and uh, Kevin Garnett. But seeing him give the trophy to Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and Ray Allen was really neat to me because they were all players that were journeyman players that had been fantastic, but had always been the star player on their own team and had never won a championship. And then they put them all together and they got that championship with the Celtics for them to win their first championship since the 1980s. And, you know, getting to have that moment, seeing Bill Russell give them all that well-earned first NBA title was kind of cool. No, that, that's certainly a good point. Like, that was like a, a title, I think, that meant so much to Celtics fans. And, you know, they kind of felt like almost like a normal franchise. They, they, you got to see the, the jubilation from their fans then, almost like they were winning a title for the first time. Whereas, you know, with their dynasty years, it was almost like you almost take it for granted. Exactly. I mean, you know – the people think about the Patriots being a dynasty, but they're nowhere near on the level of what we saw with the Celtics in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of interesting to see how long it's been. And then, of course, this season they lost in the NBA Finals, and this was going to be the first time they had won, won since the Paul Pierce team. And, you know, definitely it doesn't happen near as often as it used to for them. Mm-hmm. But it's really uh, another thing I would say, you look at the fact that both L.A. and Boston, ironically, have lost such a legend in the same week. Yeah, that is interesting right there because they're so, of course, inexplicably twined when you think about the Lakers and the Celtics robbery that really like started in the 80s with, of course, Matty Johnson and Larry Bird um, for you to see this with, you know, right now, of course, uh, their, best, their best, you know, franchises right now, the Celtics coming off. Of course, uh, you know, a championship finals appearance. They didn't win, but they made the NBA finals. And then, of course, the Dodgers coming off having won a World Series a couple years ago and being the most talented team, I think, in baseball over the last four seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they've been really good, have a good chance to make it back this year. All right, Joe, speaking of a team that has not been talented, 
And in fact, uh, there were a lot of allegations. They were losing games on purpose to become more uh, talented. The Miami Dolphins, this is a crazy story right now with their owner being suspended for the first six games of the season, fined a million and a half dollars and them losing draft picks, uh, a first round draft pick in 2023 and a third round draft pick in 2024 for tampering. And this is a strange story to me because, I mean, in my mind, I feel like, you know, it would have been a much bigger deal to me if we found out that they were, in fact, losing games on purpose. But apparently these allegations, well, what they found stems from the fact that in 2019, when Tom Brady was still a member of the Patriots, they contacted him while he was under contract with the Patriots to try and get him to join the Dolphins. And apparently in 2021, they again contacted him, this time when he was under contract with the Bucs as their quarterback. And then it also uh, turns out that they, in 2021, they also contacted New Orleans Saints former coach Sean Payton to see if he would coach the Dolphins, I guess, in some kind of package deal with Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. That's right, Dan. And a lot of reactions to this story, kind of like we were talking about before the show, you, know, you wonder about with tampering, like how do you really define tampering now? Because I feel like every time a player's traded or like there's a new signing in the NFL – in the opening press conference, you always hear the same rhetoric. It's like, oh, you know, this head coach or this current player on this new team, um, they reached out to me. You know, they called me every day. They FaceTimed me every day, texted me. And you know that that undoubtedly happens while that, you know, player was on another team. And yeah. you never see any penalty there for something like that happening. You kind of just interpret it as just part of, you know, how the league exists as a professional sport. And as a business. And so I was really surprised to see uh, the Dolphins penalized and still trying to figure out, as we were jokingly saying, what it really means for an owner to be suspended. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were talking about this. I mean, you don't get to sit in the press box. You don't get to sit up there and smoke your cigars and drink your $100 uh, glasses of scotch up there while you're looking down on everybody for six games. Does it mean you can't attend the stadium? Does it mean you're not allowed to go be on the grounds of the Miami Dolphins for six games? What does suspended mean for an owner? Yeah, yeah. Can you not talk to the team, you know, do any front office business? I, I don't know. Is Roger so, Goodell going to personally check your email to see that you didn't send any emails that are official Dolphins business for the first six weeks of the season? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it gets borderline ridiculous when you nitpick it. And so I'm still trying to figure that out. And then the other side story to this is losing the first round draft pick and the future third round pick. Like that's not, you know, just a slap on the wrist because the Dolphins sacrificed so many future picks in their trade with the Chiefs to get Tyreek Hill. And so I'd have to look back at all they gave up. They may go four or five years without a first round pick, it seems like. Yeah, it's crazy, Joe. And, and I wonder, in my mind, I'm a little bit conspiratorial when I think about the way stories are released and how they did it. it to me, it's it, it's it seems like it's a huge coincidence that they release this story about the Dolphins and their tampering and the six-game suspension for their owner at the same time as the Deshaun Watson sentence is laid out by the NFL and it's only also only six games. So can you tell me how you can justify with a straight face that you're only getting Deshaun Watson six games, but yet this owner 
is getting six games. And, and I mean, to me, like the priorities are completely out of whack in, in the NFL. Yeah, it, it's hard to understand it either. The, the arguments I keep hearing mainly stem towards uh, Watson getting like the maximum that they could do under like the uh, violation of like the personal conduct policy. And then I've also like apparently they're capped at six games for that specific policy. But yet Calvin Ridley can be suspended for an entire season for betting on one game while he was injured. And that's been playing. that's like, been that's been one of the um, you know reverberating responses to that. And I think that's one reason that the league, I think somebody's appealing it you know right now to to kind of see how it's going to play out with Watson. I also have wondered like if I was Watson's side, I would try to argue that missing last year should almost count like a suspension as well. So I don't know how it's going to play out with that argument either. I think if I were Watson's side, I would not bring it up again and just be happy that's all you're getting. Well, I'm saying, like, if it, you know, if it's going to be appealed, like, I definitely would remind them, you know, that it, this is like I've, I'm losing 22 games. Oh, uh, okay. I, I see you're saying. If they try to appeal it to say it wasn't enough. and then Yeah, this was a 22-game suspension or, or, or 23, counting the 17 games. Yeah, but if I were Calvin Ridley's uh, counsel, I would be, like, hard-pressing the NFL on the fact that you're only giving Deshaun Watson six games, and yet I'm having to sit out an entire season. It's completely inaccurate. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there could be maybe a chance to get that shortened. Yeah. All right. Um, but, you know, uh, on, on that subject, so we have the Dolphins losing a lot of players. We go on the other coast, Joe, and uh, get to a different sport, and the Padres are suddenly just building an arsenal of awesome players. Of course, they've had, uh, you know, young star Fernando Tatis Jr. And now, of course, they're bringing in Juan Soto from the Nationals to have a team, uh, possibly the first $500 million player. And suddenly this Padres team is looking like one that really can compete. Yeah, they really are. Um, you know, it started out on, uh, I think it was uh, Monday, they had a surprising trade with the Milwaukee Brewers. They gave up five or six players for star closer Josh Hader. And I was really surprised to see the Brewers give him up. He's one of the better uh, relief pitchers in the game. And so uh, San Diego gets him. And then they didn't have to give up some of their best prospects. So everybody's like, they're still in the mix for Soto. I didn't really believe it, though. I kind of thought felt like, Soto would end up with like the Cardinals or somebody, you know, maybe even the Dodgers. Yes. You kind of felt like Another player for the, the Dodgers. Would, you kind of felt like the rich would get richer. And lo and behold, you know, you see a smaller market like San Diego that has an exciting lineup, you know, a team that feels like they're going to be in the playoffs this year and they get the home run. They give up all these prospects to get him. And um, they have just a potent lineup. Um, Tatis Jr., you know, missed the entire season so far um, with an injury that he suffered back in like March or April, but he's expected to come back soon. And so it's almost like a double, you know, trade win by getting both of these players back. But the other surprising thing, though, Dan, I think it was like two or three weeks ago, how this uh, transpired with Soto and the Nationals. The Nationals had a 15-year contract proposal on the table that he turned down uh, for a salary of $440 million over 15 years. So he turns that down and, uh, you know, wanted to, to be traded. So interested to see if the Padres are able to lock him up. Yeah, it is interesting, Joe. I mean, yeah, I think that if he's turning that one down, this contract's got to be for more money. 
one would assume, unless he has some kind of deep-seated problems with the Nationals, which maybe that's what it is, but you would definitely yeah. think it's going to be for a lot more money. Yes, yes. And, and I think from his standpoint, he's like, I'm 23 years old. If I sign a 15-year deal, that's it for me. Yeah. And he, he's hoping the market will reset in maybe, you know, a $440 million contract over time. You know, maybe he can get six or $700 million you know, with, with everything resetting. And so I think that's what he's banking on. We'll see if that gamble pays off, but it's been a, it's been a crazy fall from grace for the nationals the last couple of years. Um, kind of reminds me of uh, how the Marlins used to have those fire sales, you know, trading all these players after a championship recently. Yeah. Cause it was interesting because the nationals, you know, they had some good teams and then all of a sudden they come out of the wild card and win that one world series and ever since then, they've been getting rid of all their best players, and they haven't even come close to doing anything. Yeah, they've just disappeared. Like, it reminds me so much, Dan, of Miguel Cabrera being traded from the Marlins to the Tigers. I think he was also, like, about the same age that Soto is now. So, like, you know, you just don't see a team – usually you build around a 23-year-old. You yeah. know, you're not trading like a 23-year-old. So, the Padres definitely profited from that. That's right, Joe. And, you know, you think about it, this time right after the All-Star break is when the World Series teams are built. I mean, you'll see teams that are middling teams in Major League Baseball that when they have this opportunity right after the All-Star break to add the key pieces they have, they get on a run. Just look at the Braves last year. I mean, Jock Peterson, that was somebody that got added right after the All-Star break. Um, you know, and you can go on and on. There were multiple other players they had that made huge impacts on that team that were added right now. Yeah, I saw a graphic, I think, that six out of the last seven champions uh, in baseball have pulled off some type of trade around the deadline to bring in a key player. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Um, and on that subject, I'm really excited. I'm going to go to my first Braves game Labor Day weekend uh, and get to see the truest part for the first time. So I'm really excited about that. You'll get to see I, – I think I saw where Alston Riley got a 10-year contract extension, which looks pretty small compared to those 15-year offers. That's true, yeah. I mean, I guess his agent wasn't working hard enough. I'm sure Alston Riley's still plenty happy. But, you know, you think about it, maybe this was one of the reasons, Joe, they decided to go ahead and tell Freddie Freeman to go ahead and hit the bricks because they saw what Alston Riley was doing last year and they wanted to save up the capital for him. Yeah, that's what they're doing. That They've decided instead of paying Freeman money, they're going to build around Riley, Albies, Acuna, Acuna, and then they gave you know Matt Olson, the new first baseman, the big contract too. That's right, Joe. Well, you know, uh, we talked about it. The Nationals are obviously in a rebuilding area now with them getting rid of all their players. And, Joe, one of the funniest quotes, I think, of this week, speaking of rebuilding – was Nick Saban talking about Alabama's football team last year, not winning the national championship, losing multiple games, including to Texas A&M, which was his first loss to a assistant in Jimbo Fisher. And I guess the second one would have happened the same year with his loss to Kirby. And Nick Saban calling a national championship game appearance and loss a rebuilding season. Yeah, that, that was kind of a, an interesting quote. I saw it today and we were talking about it before the show. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you made a great point. This would have been his best coaching job, you know, by far, had they won uh, the national championship last year. But I, I just always chuckle, you know, anytime anybody uh, looks at Alabama and thinks, you know, that there's any doubt that they're going to have some success. I told you that 
I can remember people back in uh, early September last year, late August, saying that there were legitimate concerns about Alabama's offense heading into last season. But I, I just always give them the benefit of the doubt under Saban, and I just you know chuckle at anything otherwise. We know it's funny, Joe, is if Alabama had pulled it off last year and won the national championship, it would have been the closest version uh, for Alabama of what Auburn did in 2010, which was you had a team that had some deficiencies but had the best offensive player in America, Cam Newton for Auburn, Bryce Young for Alabama, and the best defensive player in America, Nick Fairley for Auburn, and then, of course, Will Anderson for Alabama. And so that was kind of like that. Now, of course, Alabama had, you know, John Mechie and, and it, you know, and of course all those really good receivers that they had. Um, but, you know, still, I mean, they really did. It was a team that had two players that four outshone anyone else. But, you know, it, it definitely was not the most talented of Saban's teams. And I would say that probably his least talented team to make it as far as he did. And I really did think he did a very good coaching job winning some games they probably should have lost against Auburn and against LSU. Yes, yes. Yeah. And to qualify it, you know, by their standards, it technically, I guess, was a rebuilding year. They just rebuilt through a 14-1 and season. That's right, Joe. I mean, you think about it, uh, he doesn't lose multiple games in a season that often. And I mean, you, that can, you can define rebuilding. Like, you know, we always say rebuilding means that you maybe go like seven and five and you're kind of like, you know, uh, resurrecting yourself, but rebuilding literally really means a lot of times just getting new players and having to develop them. And if you have success, you know, then that that's ideal. Yeah. I mean, and technically when you think about it, it was rebuilding, you know, all the players that he had, Jameson Williams, that's a new guy he's bringing in. That was a star transfer receiver from Ohio state. Uh, you know, Bryce Young was someone that had been there, but they didn't get to play that much. And that was his first season as a starter Brian Robinson was a running back who had been there for a long time, but hadn't had a whole lot of chance to shine. And I think he's a good running back, but maybe in the Saban pantheon, maybe he's the least talented running back Alabama's ever had. That was the, the starter. I think you got an argument right there. Uh, you look at their defense. Will Anderson was really the only star on that defense. Now they had a very, I thought they had a, a very good defense last year. But that's really most of that in my mind was how great Will Anderson was, not the best secondary. And so there were definitely a lot of young players getting in there and getting experience. And that's what Saban meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. Like as far as like the household names, there aren't like the, just the long list of players that you normally think about with Alabama teams. That's right, Joe. And, you know, uh, I'm sure that maybe a lot of people are going to make jokes about what Bruce Pearl says about his Auburn team this year. But certainly, that's going to be a rebuilding project. All kinds of really new players across the board. Of course, they lost Walker Kessler. Uh, they lost um, Jabari Smith. And I got to see in action some of the replacements they had for it. Johan Treor is going to be the replacement for Jabari Smith, a really good small forward who can also handle the ball. And then, of course, uh, Johnny Broom, who's going to be the new inside man, uh, defensive player of the year from the OVC and Moorhead State going to replace all Walker Kessler's blocks and rebounding ability. And right now I got to see Auburn in a really great, uh, you know, advertisement for their program going to Israel to take on some of the best teams that Israel has. Uh, the first game they had, Joe, is they played the under-20 team for Israel and beat them 117-56 to 56 the other night. 
And, you know, I mean, I know basketball is kind of a secondary thing to this. Uh, Bruce Pearl is someone that he grew up Jewish, and this was a really, you know, cool experience for him to connect to his roots and to get to show a lot of his basketball players really kind of the cradle of civilization and, you know, the mainstay that created the world's three biggest churches, that being, the, you know, the Christian Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam. Yeah, yeah, it was really, um, you know, kind of a, a, a cool um, cultural experience, undoubtedly, for the team, you know, and I, I've heard about, I told you, uh, teams over the last 10 or 15 years at other colleges uh, kind of going on almost like a sabbatical where they'll go uh, during like the summer camp and they'll play like at uh, different places in Asia or Europe and kind of bond together, maybe even Australia, I think I've heard about before. And it always seems like the teams that come back from those experiences say that it was just a great, you know, uh, team, uh, a unity experience. Yeah, Joe, I mean, it seems like they're, they're having a really good time and they're getting to see something that a lot of people haven't seen. I mean, I've never been to Israel and I, I would love to get to see the old city and all of the great sites of, of Christianity, uh, Judaism and uh, Islam. And I think it's it's a really neat experience. And, and the way ESPN has covered it, it's been the SEC Network showing all these games the backstories they do, they're following them around as they go to all these different places in Israel. And it's been pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll be an interesting team, you know, to, to follow this year as well in college basketball. That's right, Joe. But the, the positive thing is, even though it's rebuilding, definitely got some real good stars and with Trey or, and with Broom, they both showed out in their game against the under 20 Israeli team. Yeah. And you can build back a lot quicker in basketball than football because you don't have to have as much depth. That's right, Joe. That's true. You can get you can get the transfer portal and get there a lot quicker. And we'll see a little bit more about this Auburn team based on how they take on the Israeli all-star team and, more importantly, the Israeli national team, which is the one that would play in the Olympics. And so mm -hmm. I'm sure those are going to be much more competitive matchups. And I doubt that we're going to see Auburn win with the kind of ease they had against the under-20 team. Right, right. All right, Joe, and speaking of ease, uh, we're going to see uh, the top uh, – we're going to see the bottom six teams, the top 25. In our next show, we're going to preview from number 20 to number 25 the teams that we've seen in the preseason top 25 and talk about what some of their biggest games are they have early in the season. And if you want to catch all of our episodes, you can look up Spotify, the Dan and Joe Sports Show, or all of our episodes the last few couple of years are on there. And of course, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can see all of our most recent episodes and us in live and willing color on YouTube. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at DJ Sports Show and like our fan page, our fan page on Facebook. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.